Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity's 2020 Halloween episode. This year, various podcasters are bringing us a variety of Victorian ghost stories. This time, we're reading A Ghostly Rental, which first appeared in a magazine, Scribers Monthly, in September 1876. The author Henry James is well known for vague psychological ghost stories with unreliable or maybe reliable narrators, as well as his chilling mix of realism and romantic suggestiveness. So listen to C.K. of Mirths and Monsters and Infernal Souls and Eternal Our Souls read this spooky 1876 ghost story. So let's settle in, friends, for a haunting tale. The Ghostly Rental by Henry James Read by me C.K., host of Mirths and Monsters and Infernal Souls and Eternal Arsenals. Get comfy. It's story time. I was in my 22nd year and I just left college. I was at liberty to choose my career and I chose it with much promptness. I afterward renounced it, in truth, with equal ardour, but I'd never regretted those two youthful years of perplexed and excited but also of agreeable and fruitful experiment. I had a taste for theology, and during my college term I had been an admiring reader of Dr. Channing. This was theology of a grateful and succulent savour. It seemed to offer one the rose of faith delightfully stripped of its thorns. And then, for I rather think this had something to do with it, I had taken a fancy to the old divinity school. I've always had an eye to the back scene in the human drama and it seemed to me that I might play my part with a fair chance of applause, from myself at least, in that detached and tranquil home of mild causistry, with its respectable avenue on one side and its prospect of green fields in contact with acres of woodland on the other. Cambridge, for the lovers of woods and fields has changed for the worse since those days, and the precinct in question has forfeited much of its mingled pastoral and scholastic quietude. It was then a college hall in the woods, a charming mixture. What it is now has nothing to do with my story, and I have no doubt that there are still doctrine-haunted young seniors who, as they stroll near it in the summer dusk, promise themselves, later, to taste of its fine, leisurely quality. For myself, I was not disappointed. I established myself in a great square low-browed room with deep window benches. I hung prints from Overbeck and Ari Schiefer on the walls. I arranged my books with great refinement of classification in the alcoves beside the high chimney shelf, and I began to read Plotinus and St. Augustine. Among my companions were two or three men of ability and of good fellowship, with whom I occasionally brewed a fireside bowl, and with adventurous reading, deep discourse, potations conscientiously shallow, and long country walks, my initiation into the clerical mystery progressed agreeably enough. With one of my comrades, I formed an especial friendship and we passed a great deal of time together. Unfortunately, he had a chronic weakness of one of his knees, which compelled him to lead a very sedentary life, and as I was a methodical pedestrian, this made some difference in our habits. I used often to stretch away for my daily ramble with no companion but the stick in my hand or the book in my pocket. But in the use of my legs and the sense of unstinted open air, I have always found company enough. I should, perhaps, Add that in the enjoyment of a very sharp pair of eyes, 
I found something of a social pleasure. My eyes and I were on excellent terms. They were indefatigable observers of all wayside incidents, and so long as they were amused, I was contented. It is, indeed, owing to their inquisitive habits that I came into possession of this remarkable story. Much of the country about the old college town is pretty now but it was prettier thirty years ago. The multitudinous eruption of domiciliary pasteboard which now graces the landscape in the direction of the low blue Waltham Hills had not yet taken place. There were no genteel cottages to put the shabby meadows and scrubby orchards to shame, a juxtaposition by which, in later years, neither element of the contrast has gained. That multitudinous eruption of domiciliary pasteboard which now graces the landscape in the direction of the low blue Waltham Hills had not yet taken place. There were no genteel cottages to put the shabby meadows and scrubby orchards to shame, a juxtaposition by which, in later years, neither element of the contrast had gained. Certain crooked crossroads then, as I remember them, were more deeply and naturally rural, and the solitary dwellings on the long grassy slopes beside them under the tall customary elm that curved its foliage in mid-air like the outward drooping ears of a girdled wheat sheaf sat with their shingled hoods well pulled down on their ears, and no prescience whatever of the fashion of French roofs weather-wrinkled old peasant women, as you might call them, quietly wearing the native coif and never dreaming of mounting bonnets and indecently exposing their venerable brows. That winter was what is called an open one. There was much cold but little snow. The roads were firm and free, and I was rarely compelled by the weather to forgo my exercise. One grey December afternoon, I sought it in the direction of the adjacent town of Medford, and I was retracing my steps at an even pace, and watching the pale, cold tints, the transparent amber and faded rose colour which curtained in wintry fashion the western sky, and reminded me of a sceptical smile on the lips of a beautiful woman. I came, as dusk was falling, to a narrow road which I had never traversed, and which I imagined offered me a shortcut homeward. I was about three miles away. I was late, and would have been thankful to make them too. I diverged walked some ten minutes and then perceived that the road had a very unfrequented air. The wheel ruts looked old, the stillness seemed peculiarly sensible, and yet down the road stood a house, so that it must in some degree have been a thoroughfare. On one side was a high natural embankment, on the top of which was perched an apple orchard, whose tangled bruffs made a stretch of coarse black lacework hung across the coldly rosy west. In a short time, I came to the house and I immediately found myself interested in it. I stopped in front of it gazing hard. I hardly knew why, but with a vague mixture of curiosity and timidity. It was a house like most of the houses thereabouts, except that it was decidedly a handsome specimen of its class. It stood on the grassy slope, it had its tall, impartially drooping elm beside it, and its old black well cover at its shoulder. But it was of very large proportions and it had a striking look of solidity and stoutness of timber. It had lived to a good old age, too, for the woodwork on its doorway and under its eave, carefully and abundantly carved, referred to it to the middle at the latest of the last century. All this had once been painted white, 
but the broad back of time, leaning against the doorposts for a hundred years, had laid bare the grain of the wood. Behind the house stretched an orchard of apple trees, more gnarled and fantastic than usual, and wearing in the deepening dusk a blighted and exhausted aspect. All the windows of the house had rusty shutters, without slats, and these were closely drawn. There was no sign of life about it. It looked blank, bare and vacant. And yet, as I lingered near it, it seemed to have a familiar meaning, an audible eloquence. I have always thought of the impression made upon me at first sight by that grey colonial dwelling, as a proof that induction may sometimes be near akin to divination. For after all, there was nothing on the face of the matter to warrant the very serious induction that I made. I fell back and crossed the road. The last red light of the sunset disengaged itself as it was about to vanish and rested faintly for a moment on the time-slivered front of the old house. It touched with perfect regularity the series of small panes in the fan-shaped window above the door and twinkled there fantastically. Then it died away and left the place more intensely sombre. At this moment I said to myself with the accent of profound conviction, the house is simply haunted. Somehow, immediately, I believed it. And so long as I was not shut up inside, the idea gave me pleasure. It was implied in the aspect of the house and it explained it. Half an hour before, if I had been asked, I would have said, as befitted a young man who was explicitly cultivating cheerful views of the supernatural, that there were no such things as haunted houses. But the dwelling before me gave me a vivid meaning to the empty words. It had been spiritually blighted. The longer I looked at it, the intenser seemed the secret that it held. I walked all round it. I tried to peep here and there, through a crevice in the shutters, and I took a puerile satisfaction in laying my hand on the doorknob and gently turning it. If the door had yielded, would I have gone in? Would I have penetrated the dusty stillness? My audacity, fortunately, was not put to the test. The portal was admirably solid and I was unable even to shake it. At last I turned away, casting many looks behind me. I pursued my way, and, after a longer walk than I had bargained for, reached the high road. At a certain distance below the point at which the long lane I have mentioned entered it, stood a comfortable, tidy dwelling, which might have offered itself as the model of the house, which is in no sense haunted, which has no sinister secrets, and knows nothing but blooming prosperity. Its clean white paint stared placidly through the dusk, and its vine-covered porch had been dressed in straw for the winter. An old, one-horse chaise, freighted with two departing visitors, was leaving the door and through the undraped windows I saw the lamp-lit sitting room and the table spread with the early tea which had been improvised for the comfort of the guests. The mistress of the house had come to the gate with her friends. She lingered there after the chaise had wheeled creakingly away, half to watch them down the road and half to give me, as I passed in the toilet, a questioning look. She was a comely, quick young woman with a sharp, dark eye, and I ventured to stop and speak to her. That house down that side road, I said, about a mile from here, the only one. Can you tell me whom it belongs to? She stared at me a moment and I thought coloured a little. Our folks never go down that road, she said briefly. But it's a short way to Medford, I answered. She gave a little toss of her head. Perhaps it would turn out a long way. At any rate, we don't use it. This was interesting. A thrifty Yankee household must have good reasons for this scorn of time-saving processes. But you know the house at least, I said. 
Well, I have seen it. And to whom does it belong? She gave a little laugh and looked away, as if she were aware that, to a stranger, her words might seem to savour of agricultural superstition. I guess it belongs to them that are in it. But is there anyone in it? It is completely closed. That makes no difference. They never come out and no one ever goes in. And she turned away. But I laid my hand on her arm, respectfully. You mean, I said, that the house is haunted? She drew herself away, coloured, raised her finger to her lips and hurried into the house, where, in a moment, the curtains were dropped over the window. For several days I thought repeatedly of this little adventure, but I took some satisfaction in keeping it to myself. If the house was not haunted, it was useless to expose my imaginative whims, and if it was, it was agreeable to drain the cup of horror without assistance. I determined, of course, to pass that way again, and a week later, it was the last day of the year, I retraced my step. I approached the house from the opposite direction and found myself before it at about the same hour as before. The light was failing, the sky low and grey. The wind wailed along the hard bare ground and made slow eddies of the frost blackened leaves. The melancholy mansion stood there, seeming to gather the winter twilight around it and mask itself in it, inscrutably. I hardly knew on what errand I had come, but I had a vague feeling that if this time the doorknob were to turn and the door to open, I should take my heart in my hands and let them close behind me. Who were the mysterious tenants to whom the good woman at the corner had alluded? What had been seen or heard? What was related? The door was as stubborn as before, and my impertinent fumblings with the latch caused no upper window to be thrown open, nor any strange pale face to be thrust out. I ventured even to raise the rusty knocker and give it a half dozen raps. But they made a flat, dead sound and aroused no echo. Familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know what I should have done next if, in the distance, up the road, the same one I had followed, I had not seen a solitary figure advancing. I was unwilling to be observed hanging about this ill-famed dwelling, and I sought refuge amongst the dense shadows of a grove of pines nearby, where I might peep forth and yet remain invisible. Presently, the newcomer drew near, and I perceived that he was making straight for the house. He was a little old man, the most striking feature of whose appearance was a voluminous cloak of a sort of military cut. He carried a walking stick and advanced in a slow, painful, somewhat hobbling fashion, but with an air of extreme resolution. He turned off from the road and followed the vague wheel track, and within a few yards of the house he paused. He looked up at it, fixedly and searchingly as if he were counting the windows or noting certain familiar marks. Then he took off his hat and bent over slowly and solemnly, as if he were performing an obeisance. As he stood uncovered, I had a good look at him. He was, as I have said, a diminutive old man, but it would have been hard to decide whether he belonged to this world or to the other. His head reminded me vaguely of the portraits of Andrew Jackson. He had a crop of grizzled hair, as still as a brush, a lean, pale, smooth, shaven face, and an eye of intense brilliancy, surmounted with thick brows which had remained perfectly black. His face, as well as his cloak, seemed to belong to an old soldier. He looked like a retired military man of a modest rank, but he struck me as exceeding the classic privilege of even such a personage to be eccentric and grotesque. When he finished his salute, he advanced to the door fumbled in the folds of his cloak which hung down much further in front than behind, 
and produced a key. This he slowly and carefully inserted into the lock and then, apparently, he turned it. But the door did not immediately open. First he bent his head, turned his ear and stood listening and then he looked up and down the road. Satisfied or reassured, he applied his aged shoulder to one of the deep-set panels and pressed a moment. The door yielded, opening into perfect darkness. He stopped again on the threshold and again removed his hat and made his bow. Then he went in and carefully closed the door behind him. Who in the world was he and what was his errand? He might have been a figure out of one of Hoffman's tales. Was he a vision or a reality? An inmate of the house or a familiar, friendly visitor? What had been the meaning, in either case, of his mystic genuflections? And how did he propose to proceed in that inner darkness? I emerged from my retirement and observed narrowly several of the windows. In each of them, at an interval, a ray of light became visible in the chink between the two leaves of the shutters. Evidently, he was lighting up. Was he going to have a party? A ghostly revel? My curiosity grew intense, but I was quite at a loss how to satisfy him. For a moment, I thought of rapping preemptorily at the door, but I dismissed this idea as unmannerly and calculated to break the spell, if spell there was. I walked round the house and tried, without violence, to open one of the lower windows. It resisted, but I had better fortune in a moment with another. There was a risk, certainly, in the trick I was playing. A risk of being seen from within. Or worse, seeing myself something I should repent of seeing. But curiosity, as I say, had become an inspiration, and the risk was highly agreeable. Through the parting of the shutters, I looked into a lighted room. A room lighted by two candles in old brass flambeau, placed upon the mantel shelf. It was apparently a sort of back parlour and I had retained all its furniture. This was of a homely, old-fashioned pattern and consisted of haircloth chairs and sofas, spare mahogany tables and framed samplers hung upon the walls. But although the room was furnished, it had a strangely uninhabited look. The tables and chairs were in rigid positions and no small, familiar objects were visible. I could not see everything and I could only guess at the existence on my right of a large folding door. It was apparently open, and the light of the neighbouring room passed through it. I waited for some time, but the room remained empty. At last I became conscious that a large shadow was projected upon the wall opposite the folding door. The shadow, evidently, of a figure in the adjoining room. It was tall and grotesque, and seemed to represent a person sitting perfectly motionless, in profile. I thought I recognised the perpendicular bristles and far-arching nose of my little old man. There was a strange fixedness in his posture. He appeared to be seated and looking intently at something. I watched the shadow a long time, but it never stirred. At last, however, just as my patience began to ebb, it moved slowly, rose to the ceiling and became indistinct. I don't know what I should have seen next, but by an irresistible impulse I closed the shutter. Was it delicacy? Was it pusillanimity? I can hardly say. I lingered nevertheless near the house, hoping that my friend would reappear. I was not disappointed, for he at last emerged, looking just as when he had gone in. 
and taking his leave in the same ceremonious fashion. The lights I had already observed had disappeared from the crevice of each of the windows. He faced about before the door, took off his hat, and made an obsequious bow. As he turned away, I had a hundred minds to speak to him, but I let him depart in peace. This, I may say, was pure delicacy. You will answer, perhaps, that it came too late. It seemed to me they had a right to resent my observation, though my own right to exercise it, if ghosts were in the question, struck me as equally positive. I continued to watch him as he hobbled softly down the bank and along the lonely road. Then I musingly retreated in the opposite direction. I was tempted to follow him, at a distance, to see what became of him, but this, too, seemed indelicate. And I confess, moreover, that I felt the inclination to coquette a little, as it were, with my discovery, to pull apart the petals of the flower one by one. I continued to smell the flower from time to time, for its oddity of perfume had fascinated me. I passed by the house on the crossroad again, but never encountered the old man in the cloak or any other wayfarer. It seemed to keep observers at a distance and I was careful not to gossip about it. One inquirer, I said to myself, may edge his way into the secret, but there is no room for two. At the same time, of course, I would have been thankful for any chance sidelight that might fall across the matter, though I could not well see whence it was to come. I hoped to meet the old man in the cloak elsewhere, but as the days passed by without his reappearing, I ceased to expect it. And yet I reflected that he probably lived in that neighbourhood, and as much as he had made his pilgrimage to the vacant house on foot. If he had come from a distance, he would have been sure to arrive in some old, deep hooded gig with yellow wheels, a vehicle as venerably grotesque as himself. One day I took a stroll in Mount Auburn Cemetery, an institution at that period in its infancy, and full of sylvain charm which it has now completely forfeited. It contained more maple and birch than willow and cypress, and the sleepers had ample elbow room. It was not a city of the dead, but at the most a village, and a meditative pedestrian might stroll there without too importunate reminder of the grotesque side of our claims to posthumous consideration. I had come out to enjoy the first foretaste of spring, one of those mild days of late winter, where the torpid earth seems to draw the first long breath that marks the rupture of the spell of sleep. The sun was veiled in haze and yet warm, and the frost was oozing from its deepest lurking place. I had been treading for half an hour the winding ways of the cemetery when suddenly I perceived a familiar figure seated on a bench against a southward-facing evergreen hedge. I call the figure familiar because I had seen it often in memory and in fancy. In fact, I had beheld it but once. Its back was turned to me, but it wore a voluminous cloak which there was no mistaking. Here, at last, was my fellow visitor at the haunted house, and here was my chance. If I wished to approach him, I made a circuit and came toward him from in front. He saw me at the end of the alley and sat motionless, with his hands on the head of his stick, watching me from under his black eyebrows as I drew near. At a distance, these black eyebrows looked formidable. They were the only thing I saw in his face, but on a closer view I was reassured, simply because I immediately felt that no man could really be as fantastically fierce as this poor old gentleman looked. His face was a kind of caricature of martial truculence. I stopped in front of him and respectfully asked leave to sit and rest upon his bench. 
He granted it with a silent gesture of much dignity, and I placed myself beside him. In this position, I was able, covertly, to observe him. He was quite as much an oddity in the morning sunshine as he had been in the dubious twilight. The lines in his face were as rigid as if they had been hacked out of a block by a clumsy woodcarver. His eyes were flamboyant, his nose terrific, his mouth implacable. And yet, after a while, when he slowly turned and looked at me, fixedly, I perceived that in spite of this portentous mask, he was a very mild old man. I was sure he even would have been glad to smile, but evidently his facial muscles were too stiff. They had taken a different fold once for all. I wondered whether he was demented, but I dismissed the idea. The fixed glitter in his eye was not that of insanity. What his face really expressed was deep and simple sadness. His heart perhaps was broke, but his brain was intact. His dress was shabby but neat, and his old blue cloak had known half a century's brushing. I hastened to make some observation upon the exceptional softness of the day, and he answered me in a gentle, mellow voice, which it was almost startling to hear proceed from such bellicose lips. This is a very comfortable place, he presently added. I am fond of walking in graveyards, I rejoined deliberately, flattering myself that I would struck a vein that might lead to something. I was encouraged. He turned and fixed me with his duskily glowing eyes, then very gravely, walking. Yes, take all your exercise now. Some day you'll have to settle down in a graveyard in a fixed position. Very true, said I. But you know there are some people who are said to take exercise even after that day. He had begun looking at me still. At this, he looked away. You don't understand? I said gently. He continued to gaze straight before him. Some people, you know, walk about after death, I went on. At last he turned and looked at me more portentously than ever. You don't believe that, he said simply. How do you know I don't? Because you are young and foolish. This was said without acerbity, even kindly, but in the tone of an old man whose consciousness of his own heavy experience made everything else seem light. I am certainly young, I answered, but I don't think that, on the whole, I am foolish. But say I don't believe in ghosts. Most people would be on my side. Most people are fools, said the old man. I let the question rest and talked of other things. My companion seemed on his guard. He eyed me defiantly and made brief answers to my remarks. But I nevertheless gathered an impression that our meeting was an agreeable thing to him, and even a social incident of some importance. He was evidently a lonely creature, and his opportunities for gossip were rare. He had had troubles, and they had detached him from the world and driven him back upon himself. But the social cord in his antiquated soul was not entirely broken, and I was sure he was gratified that it could still feebly resound. At last, he began to ask questions himself. He inquired whether I was a student. I am a student of divinity, I answered. Of divinity? Of theology. I am studying for the ministry. At this, he eyed me with peculiar intensity, after which his gaze wandered away again. There are certain things you ought to know, then, he said at last. I have a great desire for knowledge, I answered. What things do you mean? He looked at me again a while, but without heeding my question. I like your appearance, he said. You seem to be a sober lad. Oh, I am perfectly sober, I exclaimed, yet departing for a moment from my soberness. I think you are fair-minded, he went on. I don't any longer strike you as foolish, then? I asked. I stick to what I said about people who deny the power of departed spirits to return. They are fools. 
and he rapped fiercely with his staff on the earth. I hesitated a moment and then abruptly, You have seen a ghost? I said. He appeared not at all startled. You are right, sir, he answered with great dignity. With me, it is not a matter of cold theory. I have not had to pry into old books to learn what to believe. I know. With these eyes I have beheld the departed spirit standing before me as near as you are. And his eyes, as he spoke, certainly looked as though if they had rested upon strange things. I was irresistibly impressed. I was touched with credulity. And was it very terrible? I asked. I am an old soldier. I am not afraid. When was it? Where was it? I asked. He looked at me mistrustfully and I saw that I was going too fast. Excuse me from going into particulars, he said. I am not at liberty to speak more fully. I have told you so much because I cannot bear to hear this subject spoken of lightly. Remember in future that you have seen a very honest old man who told you on his honour that he had seen a ghost. And he got up as if he thought he had said enough. Reserve, shyness, pride, the fear of being laughed at, the memory, possibly, of former strokes of sarcasm, all this on one side had its weight with him. But I suspected that on the other his tongue was loosened by the garrulity of old age, the sense of solitude and the need of sympathy, and perhaps also by the friendliness which he had been so good as to express towards myself. Evidently, it would be unwise to press him, but I hoped to see him again. To give greater weight to my words, he added, let me mention my name. Captain Diamond, sir, I have seen service. I hope I may have the pleasure of meeting you again, I said. The same to you, sir. And brandishing his stick portentously, though with the friendliest of tensions, he marched stiffly away. I asked two or three persons, selected with discretion whether they knew anything about Captain Diamond, but they were quite unable to enlighten me. At last, suddenly, I smote my forehead, and dubbing myself adult, remembered that I was neglecting a source of information to which I had never applied in vain. The excellent person at whose table I had habitually dined, and who dispensed hospitality to students at so much a week, had a sister as good as herself, and of conversational powers more varied. This sister, who was known as Miss Deborah, was an old maid in all the force of the term. She was deformed and she never went out of the house. She sat all day at the window between a birdcage and a flower pot, stitching small linen articles, mysterious bands and frills. She wielded, I was assured, an exquisite needle, and her work was highly prized. In spite of her deformity and her confinement, she had a little fresh round face and an imperturbable serenity of spirit. She had also a very quick little wit of her own. She was extremely observant, and she had a high relish for a friendly chat. Nothing pleased her so much as to have you, especially, I think, if you were a young divinity student. Move your chair near her sunny window and settle yourself for twenty minutes' talk. Well, sir, she used to always say, what is the latest monstrosity in biblical criticism? for she used to pretend to be horrified at the rationalistic tendency of the age. But she was an inexorable little philosopher, and I am convinced that she was a keener rationalist than any of us, and that, if she had chosen, she could have propounded questions that would have made the boldest of us wince. Her window commanded the whole town, or rather the whole country, 
knowledge came to her as she sat singing with her little cracked voice in her low rocking chair. She was the first to learn everything and the last to forget it. She had town gossip at her fingers' ends and she knew everything about people she had ever seen. When I asked her how she had acquired her learning, she said simply, Oh, I observe. Observe closely enough, she once said, and it doesn't matter where you are. You may be in a pitch dark closet. All you want is something to start with. One thing leads to another and all things are mixed up. Shut me up in the dark closet and I will observe after a while that some places in it are darker than others. After that, give me time and I will tell you what the President of the United States is going to have for dinner. Once I paid her a compliment. Your observation, I said, is as fine as your needle and your statements are as true as your stitches. Of course, Miss Deborah had heard of Captain Diamond. He had been much talked about many years before, but he had survived the scandal that attached to his name. What was the scandal? I asked. He killed his daughter. Killed her? I cried. How so? Oh, not with a pistol or a dagger or a dose of arsenic. With his tongue. Talk of women's tongues. He cursed her with some horrible oath and she died. What had she done? She had received a visit from a young man who loved her and whom he had forbidden the house. The house, I said. Ah, yes. The house is out in the country, two or three miles from here in a lonely crossroad. Miss Deborah looked sharply at me as she bit her thread. Ah, you know about the house, she said. A little, I answered. I have seen it, but I want you to tell me more. But here, Miss Deborah betrayed an incommunicativeness which was most unusual. You wouldn't call me superstitious, would you? She asked. You? You're the quintessence of pure reason. Well... Every thread has its rotten place, and every needle its grain of rust. I would rather not talk about that house. You have no idea how you excite my curiosity, I said. I can feel for you, but it would make me very nervous. What harm can come to you, I asked. Some harm came to a friend of mine, and Miss Deborah gave a very positive note. What had your friend done? She had told me Captain Diamond's secret which he had told her with a mighty mystery. She had been an old flame of his, and he took her into his confidence. He bade her tell no one, and assured her that if she did, something dreadful would happen to her. And what happened to her? She died. Oh, we're all mortal, I said. Had she given him a promise? She had not taken it seriously. She had not believed him. She repeated the story to me, and three days afterwards, she was taken with inflammation of the lungs. A month afterward, here, where I sit now, I was stitching her grave clothes. Since then, I have never mentioned what she told me. Was it very strange? It was strange, but it was ridiculous too. It's a thing to make you shudder and to make you laugh, both. But you can't worry it out of me. I am sure that if I were to tell you, I should immediately break a needle in my finger and die the next week of lockjaw. I retired and urged Miss Deborah no further. But every two or three days after dinner, I came and sat down by her rocking chair. I made no further allusion to Captain Diamond. I sat silent, clipping tape with her scissors. At last, one day, she told me I was looking poorly. I was pale. I am dying of curiosity, I said. I have lost my appetite. I have eaten no dinner. Remember Bluebeard's wife, said Miss Deborah. One may as well perish by the sword as by famine, I answered. Still, she said nothing, and at last I rose with a melodramatic sigh and departed. As I reached the door, she called me and pointed to the chair I had vacated. I was never hard-hearted, she said. Sit down, and if we are to perish, may we at least perish together. 
And then, in a very few words, she communicated what she knew of Captain Diamond's secret. He was a very high-tempered old man, and though he was very fond of his daughter, his will was law. He had picked out a husband for her and given her due notice. Her mother was dead, and they lived alone together. The house had been Mrs. Diamond's own marriage portion. The captain, I believe, hadn't a penny. After his marriage, they had come to live there, and he had begun to work the farm. The poor girl's lover was a young man with whiskers from Boston. The captain came in one evening and found them together. He collared the young man and hurled a terrible curse at the poor girl. The young man cried that she was his wife, and he asked her if it was true. She said, no. Thereupon, Captain Diamond, his fury growing fiercer, re repeated his imprecation, ordered her out of the house and disowned her forever. She swooned away, but her father was raging off and left her. Several hours later, he came back and found the house empty. On the table was a note from the young man telling him that he'd killed his daughter, repeating the assurance that she was his own wife, and declaring that he himself claimed the sole right to commit her remains to earth. He'd carried the body away in a gig. Captain Diamond wrote him a dreadful note in answer, saying that he didn't believe his daughter was dead, but that, whether or no, she was dead to him. A week later, in the middle of the night, he saw her go. Then, I suppose, he was convinced. The ghost reappeared several times and finally began regularly to haunt the house. It made the old man very uncomfortable, for little by little his passion had passed away and he was given up to grief. He determined at last to leave the place and tried to sell it or rent it, but meanwhile the story had gone abroad. The ghost had been seen by other persons, the house had a bad name and it was impossible to dispose of it. With the farm, it was the old man's only property and his only means of subsistence. If he could neither live in it nor rent it, he was beggared. But the ghost had no mercy as he had had none. He struggled for six months and at last he broke down. He put on his old blue cloak and took up his staff and prepared to wander, sway and beg his bread. Then the ghost relented and proposed a compromise. Leave the house to me, it said. I have marked it for my own. Go off and live elsewhere. But to enable you to live, I will be your tenant. Since you can find no other, I will hire the house of you and pay you a certain rent. And the ghost named a sum. The old man consented and he goes every quarter to collect his rent. I laughed at this recital, but I confess I shuddered too, for my own observation had exactly confirmed it. Had I not been witness of one of the captain's quarterly visits? Had I not all but seen him sit watching his spectral tenant count out the rent money? And when he trudged away in the dark, had he not a little bag of strangely gotten coin f hidden in the folds of his old blue cloak? I imparted none of these reflections to Miss Deborah, for I was determined that my observation should have a sequel, and I promised myself the pleasure of treating her to my story in its full maturity. Captain Diamond, I asked, has no other known means of subsistence. None whatever. He toils not. Neither does he spin. His ghost supports him. A haunted house is valuable property. And in what coin does the ghost pay? In good American gold and silver, it has only this peculiarity, that the pieces are all dated before the young girl's death. It's a strange mixture of matter and spirit. And does the ghost do things handsomely? Is the rent large? The old man, I believe, lives decently and has his pipe and his glass. He took a little house down by the river. The door is sideways to the street and there is a little garden before it. There he spends his days and has an old woman to do for him. Some years ago, 
He used to wander about a good deal. He was a familiar figure in the town and most people knew his legend. But of late, he has drawn back into his shell. He sits over his fire and curiosity has forgotten him. I suppose he's falling into his dotage. But I am sure, I trust, said Miss Deborah in conclusion, that he won't outlive his faculties or his powers of locomotion, for, if I remember rightly, it was part of the bargain that he should come in person to collect his rent. We neither of us seem likely to suffer any especial penalty for Miss Deborah's indiscretion. I found her, day after day, singing over her work, neither more nor less active than usual. For myself, I boldly pursued my observation. I went again more than once to the great graveyard, but I was disappointed in my hope of finding Captain Diamond there. I had a prospect, however, which afforded me compensation. I shrewdly inferred that the old man's quarterly pilgrimages were made upon the last day of the old quarter. My first sight of him had been on the 31st of December, and it was probable that he would return to his haunted house on the last day of March. This was near at hand, and at last it arrived. I betook myself late in the afternoon to the old house on the crossroad. Supposing that the hour of twilight was the appointed season, I was not wrong. I had been hovering about for a short time, feeling very much like a restless ghost myself when he appeared in the same manner as before and wearing the same costume. I again concealed myself and saw him enter the house with the ceremonial which he had used on the former occasion. A light appeared successively in the crevice of each pair of shutters and I opened the window which had yielded to my importunity before. Again, I saw the great shadow in the wall, motionless and solemn, but I saw nothing else. The old man reappeared at last, made his fantastic salam before the house and crept away into the dusk. One day, more than a month after this, I met him again at Mount Auburn. The air was full of the voice of spring. The birds had come back and were twittering over their winter's travels, and a mild west wind was making a thin murmur in the raw verdure. He was seated on a bench in the sun, still muffled in his enormous mantle, and he recognised me as soon as I approached. He nodded at me as if for an old bashaw giving the signal for my decapitation, but it was apparent that he was pleased to see me. I have looked for you here more than once, I said. You don't come often. What do you want of me? He asked. I wanted you to enjoy your conversation. I did so greatly when I met you before. You found me amusing. Interesting. I said. You don't think me cracked? Cracked? My dear sir, I protested. I'm the sanest man in the country. I know that it is what insane people always say, but generally they can't prove it. I can. I believe it, I said, but I'm curious to know how such a thing can be proved. He was silent a while. I will tell you. I once committed, unintentionally, a great crime. Now... I pay the penalty. I give up my life to it. I don't shirk it. I face it squarely, knowing perfectly what it is. I haven't tried to bluff it off. I haven't begged off from it. I haven't run away from it. The penalty is terrible, but I have accepted it. I have been a philosopher. If I were a Catholic, I might have turned monk and spent the rest of my life in fasting and praying. That is no penalty. That is an evasion. I might have blown my brains out. I might have gone mad. I wouldn't do either. I would simply face the music, take the consequences. As I say, they are awful. I take them on certain days, four times a year. So it has been these 20 years. So it will be as long as I last. It's my business. It's my avocation. That's the way I feel about it. I call that reasonable. Admirably so. 
I said, but you fill me with curiosity and with compassion, especially with curiosity, he said cunningly. Why, I answered, if I know exactly what you suffer, I can pity you more. I'm much obliged. I don't want your pity. It won't help. I'll tell you something, but it's not for myself. It's for your own sake. He paused a long time and looked all round him, as if for chance eavesdroppers. I anxiously awaited his revelation, but he disappointed me. Are you still studying theology? He asked. Oh, yes, I answered, perhaps with a shade of irritation. It's a thing one can't learn in six months. I should think not. So long as you have nothing but your books. Do you know the proverb, a grain of experience is worth a pound of percept? I'm a great theologian. Oh, you have had experience? I murmured sympathetically. You have read about the immortality of the soul. You have seen Jonathan Edwards and Dr. Hopkins chopping logic over it and deciding by chapter and verse that it is true. But I have seen it with these eyes. I have touched it with these hands. And the old man held up his rugged old fists and shook them portentously. That is better, but I have bought it dearly. You had better take it from the book. Evidently, you always will. You are a very good young man. You will never have a crime on your conscience. I answered with some juvenile fatuity that I certainly hoped I had my share of human passions. Good young man and prospective doctor of divinity as I was. Ah, but you have a nice, quiet little temper, he said. So have I, now. But once I was very brutal, very brutal. You ought to know that such things are. I killed my own child. Your own child? I struck her down to the earth and left her to die. They could not hang me, for it was not with my hand I struck her. It was with foul and damnable words. That makes a difference. It's a grand law we live under. Well, sir, I can answer for it that our soul is immortal. We have an appointment to meet four times a year. And then I catch it. She has never forgiven you? She has forgiven me as the angels forgive. That's what I can't stand. The soft, quiet way she looks at me. I'd rather she twisted a knife about in my heart. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. And Captain Diamond bowed his head over his stick and leaned his forehead on his crossed hands. I was impressed and moved, and his attitude seemed for the moment a check to further question. Before I ventured to ask him anything more, he slowly rose and pulled his old cloak around him. He was unused to talking about his troubles, and his memories overwhelmed him. I must go my way, he said. I must be creeping along. I shall perhaps meet you here again, I said. Oh, I'm a stiff-jointed old fellow, he answered, and this is rather far for me to come. I have to reserve myself. I have sat sometimes a month at a time smoking my pipe in my chair. But I should like to see you again. And he stopped and looked at me, terribly and kindly. Some day, perhaps, I shall be glad to be able to lay my hand on a young, unperverted soul. If a man can make a friend, as it is always something gained. What is your name? I had in my pocket a small volume of Pascal's Thoughts, on the flyleaf of which were written my name and address. I took it out and offered it to my old friend. Pray, keep this little book, I said. It is one I am very fond of, and it will tell you something about me. He took it and turned it over slowly, then looking up at me with a scowl of gratitude. I'm not much of a reader, he said, but I won't refuse the first present I shall have received since my troubles and the last. Thank you, sir. And with a little book in his hand, he took his departure. I was left to imagine him for some weeks after that sitting solitary in his armchair with his pipe. I had not another glimpse of him. 
but I was awaiting my chance, and on the last day of June, another quarter having elapsed, I deemed that it had come. The evening dusk in June falls late, and I was impatient for its coming. At last, toward the end of a lovely summer's day, I revisited Captain Diamond's property. Everything was now green around it, save the blighted orchard in its rear. But its own immitigable greyness and sadness were as striking as when I had first beheld it beneath a December sky. As I drew near it, I saw that I was late for my purpose, for my purpose had simply been to step forward on Captain Diamond's arrival and bravely ask him to let me go in with him. He had preceded me, and there were lights already in the windows. I was unwilling, of course, to disturb him during his ghostly interview, and I waited till he came forth. The lights disappeared in the course of time, then the door opened and Captain Diamond stole out. That evening he made no bow to the haunted house, for the first object he beheld was his fair-minded young friend, planted modestly but firmly near the doorstep. He stopped short, looking at me, and this time his terrible scowl was in keeping with the situation. I knew you were here, I said. I came on purpose. He seemed dismayed and looked round at the house uneasily. I beg your pardon if I had ventured too far, I added, but you know you have encouraged me. How did you know I was here? I reasoned it out. You told me half your story and I guessed the other half. I am a great observer and I had noticed this house in passing. It seemed to have a mystery. When you kindly confided to me that you saw spirits, I was sure that it could only be here that you saw them. You are mighty clever, cried the old man, and what brought you here this evening? I was obliged to evade this question. Oh, I often come. I'd like to look at this house. It fascinates me. He turned and looked up at it himself. It's nothing to look at outside. He was evidently quite unaware of its peculiar outward appearance, and this odd fact communicated to me, thus in the twilight and under the very brow of this sinister dwelling, seemed to make his vision of the strange things within more real. He was evidently quite unaware of its peculiar outward appearance, and this odd fact communicated to me thus in the twilight and under the very brow of the sinister dwelling seemed to make his vision of the strange things within more real. I have been hoping, I said, for a chance to see the inside. I thought I might find you here and that you would let me go in with you. I should like to see what you see. He seemed confounded by my boldness, but not altogether displeased. He laid his hand on my arm. Do you know what I see? He asked. How can I know? Except, as you said the other day, by experience. I want to have the experience. Pray, open the door and take me in. Captain Diamond's brilliant eyes expanded beneath their dusky brows, and after holding his breath a moment, he indulged in the first and last apology for a laugh which I was to see his solemn visage contorted. It was profoundly grotesque, but it was perfectly noiseless. Take you in. He softly growled, I wouldn't go in again before my time's up for a thousand times that sum. And he thrust out his hand from the folds of his cloak and exhibited a small agglomeration of coin, knotted into the corner of an old silk pocket handkerchief. I stick to my bargain no less, but no more. But you told me the first time I had the pleasure of talking with you that it was not so terrible. I don't say it's terrible now, but it's damn disagreeable. This adjective was uttered with a force that made me hesitate and reflect. While I did so, I thought I heard a slight movement of one of the window shutters above us. I looked up, but everything seemed motionless. Captain Diamond, too, had been thinking. Suddenly, he turned toward the house. If you will go in alone, he said, you are welcome. Will you wait for me here? Yes. 
you will not stop long. But the house is pitch dark. When you go, you have lights. He thrust his hand into the depths of his cloak and produced some matches. Take, take, he said. You will find two candlesticks with candles on the table in the hall. Light them. Take one in each hand and go ahead. Where shall I go? Anywhere. Everywhere. You can trust the ghost to find you. I will not pretend to deny that by this time my heart was beating, and yet I imagine I motioned the old man with a sufficiently dignified gesture to open the door. I had made up my mind that there was in fact a ghost. I had conceded the premise. Only I had assured myself that once the mine was prepared and the thing was not a surprise, it was possible to keep cool. Captain Diamond turned the lock, flung open the door and bowed low to me as I passed in. I stood in the darkness and heard the door close behind me. For some moments, I stirred neither finger nor toe. I stared bravely into the impenetrable dusk, but I saw nothing and heard nothing, and at last I struck a match. On the table were two old brass candlesticks, rusty from disuse. I lighted the candles and began my tour of exploration. Suddenly, with an inexpressible sensation, I became aware that this gloom was animated. It seemed to move and gather itself together. Slowly, I say slowly, for to my tense expectancy the instance appeared ages. It took the shape of a large, definite figure, and this figure advanced and stood at the top of the stairs. I frankly confess, by this time I was conscious of a feeling to which I am in duty bound to apply the vulgar name of fear. I may poetize it and call it dread with a capital letter. It was at any rate the feeling that makes a man yield ground. I measured it as it grew, and it seemed perfectly irresistible, for it did not appear to come from within but from without and to be embodied in the dark image at the head of the staircase. After a fashion I reasoned, I remember reasoning. I said to myself, I had always thought ghosts were white and transparent. This is a thing of thick shadows, densely opaque. I reminded myself that the occasion was momentous and that if fear were to overcome me, I should gather all possible impressions while my wits remained. I stepped back, foot behind foot, with my eyes still on the figure, and placed my candles on the table. I was perfectly conscious that the proper thing was to ascend the stairs resolutely, face to face with the image, but the soles of my shoes seemed suddenly to have been transformed into leaden weights. I had got what I wanted. I was seeing the ghost. I tried to look at the figure distinctly so that I could remember it and fairly claim afterward not to have lost my self-possession. I even asked myself how long it was expected I should stand looking and how soon I could honourably retire. All this, of course, passed through my mind with extreme rapidity and it was checked by a further movement on the part of the figure. Two white hands appeared in the dark perpendicular mass and were slowly raised to what seemed to be the level of the head. Here they were pressed together over the region of the face and then they were removed and the face was disclosed. It was dim, white, strained, in every way ghostly. It looked down at me for an instant, after which one of the hands was raised again, slowly and waved to and fro before it. There was something very singular in this gesture. It seemed to denote resentment and dismissal, and yet it had a sort of trivial, familiar 
motion. Familiarity on the part of the haunting presence had not entered into my calculations and did not strike me pleasantly. I agreed with Captain Diamond that it was damned disagreeable. I was pervaded by an intense desire to make an orderly, and if possible, a graceful retreat. I wished to do it gallantly, and it seemed to me that it would be gallant to blow out my candles. I turned and did so, punctiliously, and then I made my way to the door, groped a moment and opened up. The outer light, almost extinct as it was, entered for a moment, played over the dusty depths of the house and showed me the solid shadow. Standing on the grass, bent over his stick under the early glimmering stars, I found Captain Diamond. He looked up at me fixedly for a moment but asked no questions and then he went and locked the door. This duty performed, he discharged the other, made his obeisance, like the priest before the altar, and then without heeding me further, took his departure. A few days later, I suspended my studies and went off for the summer's vacation. I was absent for several weeks, during which I had plenty of leisure to analyze my impressions of the supernatural. I took some satisfaction in the reflection that I had not been ignobly terrified. I had not bolted nor swooned. I had proceeded with dignity. Nevertheless, I was certainly more comfortable when I put 30 miles between me and the scene of my exploit, and I continued for many days to prefer the daylight to the dark. My nerves had been powerfully excited. Of this, I was particularly conscious when, under the influence of the drowsy air of the seaside, my excitement began slowly to ebb. As it disappeared, I attempted to make a sternly rational view of my experience. Certainly, I had seen something. That was not fancy, but what had I seen? I regretted extremely now that I had not been bolder, that I had not gone nearer and inspected the apparition more minutely. But it was all very well to talk. I had not done as much as any man in the circumstances would have dared. It was indeed a physical impossibility that I should have advanced. Was not this paralysation of my powers in itself a supernatural influence? Not necessarily. Perhaps, for a sham ghost that one accepted, might do as much execution as a real ghost. But why had I so easily accepted this sable phantom that waved its hand? Why had it so impressed itself? Unquestionably, true or false, it was a very clever phantom. I greatly preferred that it should have been true in the first place because I did not care to have shivered and shaken for nothing and in the second place, because to have seen a well-authenticated goblin is, as things go, a feather in a quiet man's cap. I tried, therefore, to let my vision rest and to stop turning it over, but an impulse stronger than my will recurred at intervals and set a mocking question on my lips. Granted that the apparition was Captain Diamond's daughter, if it was she, it certainly was her spirit. But was it not her spirit and something more? The middle of September saw me again established among the theologic shades, but I made no haste to revisit the haunted house. The last of the month approached, the term of another quarter with poor Captain Diamond, and found me indisposed to disturb his pilgrimage on this occasion, though I confess that I thought with a good deal of compassion of the feeble old man trudging away lonely in the autumn dusk on his extraordinary errand. On the 30th of September, at noonday, I was drowsing over a heavy octavo when I heard a feeble rap at my door. I replied with an invitation to enter, but as this produced no effect, I repaired to the door and opened it. Before me stood an elderly woman with her head bound in a scarlet turban and a white handkerchief folded across her bosom. She looked at me intently and in silence. She had that air of supreme gravity and decency 
which aged persons so often wear. I stood interrogative, and at last, drawing her hand from her ample pocket, she held up a little book. It was the copy of Pascal's Thoughts that I had given to Captain Diamond. Please, sir, she said very mildly. Do you know this book? Perfectly, said I. My name is on the flyleaf. It is your name, no other. I will write my name if you like and you can compare them, I answered. She was silent a moment and then, with dignity, it would be useless, sir, she said. I can't read. If you will give me your word, that is enough. I come, she went on, from the gentleman to whom you gave the book. He told me to carry it as a token. A token, that is what he called it. He is right down sick and he wants to see you. Captain Diamond? Sick, I cried. Is his illness serious? He is very bad. He is all gone. I expressed my regret and sympathy and offered to go to him immediately, if his messenger would show me the way. She assented deferentially, and in a few moments I was following her along the sunny streets, feeling very much like a personage in the Arabian night. My own conductress directed her steps towards the river and stood at a decent little yellow house in one of the streets that descend to it. She quickly opened the door and led me in, and I very soon found myself in the presence of my old friend. He was in bed, in a darkened room, and evidently in a very feeble state. He lay back on his pillow, staring before him, with his bristling hair more erect than ever, and his intensely dark and bright old eyes touched with a glitter of fever. His apartment was humble and scrupulously neat, and I could see that my guide was a faithful servant. Captain Diamond, lying there rigid and pale on his white sheets, resembled some ruggedly craven figure on the lid of a gothic tomb. He looked at me silently, and my companion withdrew and left us alone. Yes, it's you, he said at last. It's you, that good young man. There is no mistake, is there? I hope not. I believe I'm a good young man. But I am very sorry you are ill. What can I do for you? I am very bad. Very bad. My poor old bones ache so. And, groaning portentously, he... <sighs> tried to turn toward me. I questioned him about the nature of his malady and the length of time he had been in bed, but he barely heeded me. He seemed impatient to speak of something else. He grasped my sleeve, pulled me toward him and whispered quickly, You know my time's up. Oh, I trust not, I said, mistaking his meaning. I shall certainly see you on your legs again. God knows, he cried, but I don't mean I'm dying. Not yet a bit. What I mean is I'm due at the house. This is rent day. Oh, exactly. But you can't go. I can't go. It's awful. I shall lose my money. If I am dying, I want it all the same. I want to pay the doctor. I want to be buried like a respectable man. It is this evening? I asked. This evening at sunset. Sharp. He lay staring at me, and as I looked at him in return, I suddenly understood his motive in sending for me. Morally, as it came into my thought, I winced. But I suppose I looked unperturbed, for he continued in the same tone. I can't lose my money. Someone else must go. I asked Belinda, but she won't hear of it. You believe the money will be paid to another person? We can try, at least. I have never failed before, and I don't know. But if you say I'm as sick as a dog, that my old bones ache, that I'm dying, perhaps she'll trust you. She doesn't want me to starve. You would like me to go in your place, then. You have been there once. You know what it is. Are you afraid? I hesitated. Give me three minutes to reflect, I said, and I will tell you. My glance wandered over the room and rested on the various objects that spoke of the threadbare, decent poverty of its occupant. There seemed to be a mute appeal to my pity and my resolution in their cracked and faded sparseness. Meanwhile, Captain Diamond continued feebly. I think she trusts you. 
as I have trusted you. She'll like your fate. She'll see there is no harm in you. It's a hundred and thirty-three dollars exactly. Be sure you put them into a safe place. Yes, I said at last. I will go, and so far as it depends upon me, you shall have the money by nine o'clock tonight. He seemed greatly relieved. He took my hand and faintly pressed it, and soon afterward I withdrew. I tried for the rest of the day not to think of my evening's work, but, of course, I thought of nothing else. I will not deny that I was nervous. I was, in fact, greatly excited, and spent my time in alternately hoping that the mystery should prove less deep than it appeared, and yet fearing that it might prove too shallow. The hours passed very slowly, but as the afternoon began to wane, I started on my mission. On the way, I stopped at Captain Diamond's modest dwelling to ask how he was doing and to receive such last instructions as he might desire to lay upon me. The old servant, gravely and inscrutably placid, admitted me and... In answer to my inquiries, said the captain was very low. He had sunk since the morning. You must be right smart, she said, if you want to get back before he drops off. A glance assured me that she knew of my projected expedition, though in her own opaque black pupil there was not a gleam of self-betrayal. But why should Captain Diamond drop off, I asked. He certainly seems very weak, but I cannot make out that he has any definite disease. His disease is old age. But he's not so old as that, 67 or 68 at most. She was silent a moment. He's worn out. He's used up. He can stand it no longer. Can I see him a moment? I asked, upon which she led me again into his room. He was lying in the same way as when I had left him, except that his eyes were closed. But he seemed very low, as she had said, and he had very little pulse. Nevertheless, I further learned their doctor had been in there in the afternoon and professed himself satisfied. He doesn't know what's been going on said Belinda, curtly. The old man stirred a little, opened his eyes, and after some time recognised me. I'm going, you know, I said. I'm going for your money. Have you anything more to say? He raised himself slowly and with a painful effort against his pillows, but he seemed hardly to understand me. The house. The house, you know, I said. Your daughter. He rubbed his forehead slowly a while, and then at last his comprehension awoke. Ah, yes, he murmured. I trust you. A hundred and thirty-three dollars in old pieces, all in old pieces. Then he added more vigorously and with a brightening eye, Be very respectful, be very polite. If not, if not. And his voice failed again. Oh, I certainly shall be, I said with a rather forced smile. But if not, if not, if not, I shall know it, he said very gravely. And with this, his eyes closed and he sunk down again. I took my departure and pursued my journey with a sufficiently resolute step. When I reached the house, I made a proprietary bow in front of it in emulation of Captain Diamond. I timed my walk so as to be able to enter without delay. Night had already fallen. I turned the key, opened the door and shut it behind me. And then I struck a light and found the two candlesticks I had used before, standing on the tables in the entry. I applied a match to both of them, took them up, and went into the parlour. It was empty, and though I waited a while, it remained empty. I passed then into the other rooms on the same floor, and no dark image rose before me to check my step. At last, I came out into the hall again and stood weighing the question of going upstairs. The staircase had been the scene of my discomfiture before, and I approached it with a profound mistrust. At the foot, I paused. Looking up with my hand on the balustrade, I was acutely expectant, and my expectation was justified. Slowly, in the darkness above, the black figure that I had seen before took shape. It was not an illusion, it was a figure, and the same.
I gave it time to define itself and watched it stand and look down at me with its hidden face. Then, deliberately, I lifted up my voice and spoke. I have come in place of Captain Diamond at his request, I said. He is very ill. He is unable to leave his bed. He earnestly begs you that you will pay the money to me. I will immediately carry it to him. The figure stood motionless, giving no sign. Captain Diamond would have come here if he was able to move, I added in a moment, appealingly, but he is utterly unable. At this, the figure slowly unveiled its face and showed me a dim, white mask. Then it began to slowly descend the stairs. Instinctively, I fell back before it, retreating to the door of the front sitting room, with my eyes still fixed on it. I moved backward across the threshold, then I stopped in the middle of the room and set down my lights. The figure advanced. It seemed to be that of a tall woman, dressed in a vaporous black crepe. As it drew near, I saw that it had a perfectly human face, though it looked extremely pale and sad. We stood gazing at each other. My agitation had completely vanished. I was only deeply interested. Is my father dangerously ill? said the apparition. At the sound of its voice, gentle, tremulous and perfectly human, I started forward. I felt a rebound of excitement. I drew a long breath. I gave a sort of cry. <gasps> For what I saw before me was not a disembodied spirit, but a beautiful woman, an audacious actress. Instinctively, irresistibly, by the force of reaction against my credulity, I stretched out my hand and seized the long veil that muffled her head. I gave it a violent jerk, dragged it nearly off and stood staring at a large, fair person of about five and thirty. I comprehended her at a glance, her long black dress, her pale sorrow-worn face painted to look paler, her very fine eyes, the colour of her father's, and her sense of outrage at my movement. My father, I suppose, she cried, did not send you here to insult me. And she turned away rapidly, took up one of the candles and moved toward the door. Here she paused, looked at me again, hesitated, and then drew a purse from her pocket and flung it down on the floor. There is your money, she said majestically. I stood there, wavering between amazement and shame, and saw her pass out into the hall. Then I picked up the purse. The next moment I heard a loud shriek and a crash of something dropping, <coughs> and she came staggering back into the room without her light. My father! My father! she cried, and with parted lips and dilated eyes she rushed towards me. Your father? Where? I demanded. In the hall! At the foot of the stairs! I stepped forward to go out, but she seized my arm. He's in white, she cried, in his shirt. It's not he. Why, your father is in his house, in his bed, extremely ill, I answered. She looked at me fixedly with searching eyes. Dying? I hope not, I stuttered. She gave a long moan and covered her face with her hands. Oh, heavens, I have seen his ghost, she cried. She still held my arm. She seemed too terrified to release it. His ghost? I echoed, wondering. It's the punishment of my long folly, she went on. Ah, said I. It's the punishment of my indiscretion, of my violence. Take me away, take me away, she cried, still clinging to my arm. Not there, as I was turning toward the hall in the front door. Not there, for pity's sake. By this door, the back entrance. And snatching the other candles from the table, she led me through the neighbouring room into the back part of the house. Here was a door opening from a sort of scullery into the orchard. I turned the rusty lock and we passed out and stood in the cool air beneath the stars. Here my companion gathered her black drapery about her and stood for a moment, hesitating. I had been infinitely flooded, but my curiosity touching her was uppermost. Agitated, pale, picturesque, she looked in that early evening light very beautiful. You have been playing, 
all these years a most extraordinary game, I said. She looked at me somberly and seemed disinclined to reply. I came in perfect good faith, I went on. The last time, three months ago, you remember, you greatly frightened me. Of course it was an extraordinary game, she answered at last, but it was the only way. Had he not forgiven you? So long as he thought me dead? Yes, there have been things in my life he could not forgive. I hesitated and then, and where is your husband? I asked. I have no husband. I have never had a husband. She made a gesture which checked further questions and moved rapidly away. I walked with her round the house to the road and she kept murmuring, It was he. It was he. When we reached the road, she stopped and asked me which way I was going. I pointed to the road by which I had come and she said, I take the other. You are going to my father's? She added. Directly, I said. Will you let me know tomorrow what you have found? With pleasure. But how shall I communicate with you? She seemed at a loss and looked about her. Write a few words, she said, and put them under that stone. And she pointed to one of the lava slabs that bordered the old well. I gave her my promise to comply and she turned away. I know my road, she said. Everything is arranged. It's an old story. She left me with a rapid step and as she receded into the darkness, resumed with the dark flowing lines of her drapery, the phantasmal appearance with which she had at first appeared to me. I watched her till she became invisible and then I took my own leave of the place. I returned to town at a swinging pace and marched straight to the little yellow house near the river. I took the liberty of entering without a knock and encountering no interruption made my way to Captain Diamond's room. Outside the door, on a low bench with folded arms, sat Belinda. How is he? I asked. He's gone to glory. Dead? I cried. She rose with a sort of tragic chuckle. He's as big a ghost as any of them now. I passed into the room and found the old man lying there irredeemably rigid and still. I wrote that evening a few lines which I proposed on the morrow to place beneath the stone near the well, but my promise was not destined to be executed. I slept that night very ill. It was natural and in my restlessness left my bed to walk about the room. As I did so, I caught sight in passing my window of a red glow in the northwestern sky. A house was on fire in the country and evidently burning fast. It lay in the same direction as the scene of my evening's adventures, and as I stood watching the crimson horizon, I was startled by a sharp memory. I had blown out the candle which lighted me with my companion to the door through which we escaped, but I had not accounted for the other light, which she had carried into the hall and dropped, heaven knew where, in her consternation. The next day, I walked out with my folded letter and I turned into the familiar crossroad. The haunted house was a mass of charred beams and smouldering ashes. The well cover had been pulled off in quest of water by the few neighbours who had the audacity to contest what they must have regarded as a demon-kindled blaze. The loose stones were completely displaced and the earth had been trampled into puddles. And there ends the story. I hope you enjoyed that. I had fun reading it, even the big words. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Courtney, for letting me have this opportunity to do some reading for your your show. I have been CK. I host Mirths and Monsters and Infernal Souls and Eternal Arseholes. Be grand if you give them a check out. Thank you, folks. Ta-ta for now. Alcatraz opened in 1934. I arrived in 1935. And I'm still here. I'm Charlie the Bagman Baglin. And I'm dead.
Tune in every fortnight to hear about some of the nastiest inmates The Rock has had. Learn about Alcatraz, about me and the fun I have with ghost hunters. I'm behind you, Baggins. Episode 1 is about Al Capone, the banjo-playing, tax-dodging numpty. Join me, Charlie, from the 6th of October on Infernal Souls and Eternal Arseholes. Available on Acast, Spotify and most other podcast players. Well hello my friends, this is CK from the Mirths and Monsters podcast. Join me, my companion Finn and my occasionally satanically possessed cat Ray Puny models. as we investigate the real truths behind some of the most wonderful creatures you can imagine. Are trolls really that thick? Or is it just bad press? Are leprechauns really drunken bums? Sort of. But there's a lot more to find out. All you need to do is tune in to Mirths and Monsters podcast with me and Finn. Till next time, slancha your good health. Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts, and our Instagram is at the Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult free.